good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are with us this morning uh, as we uh, gather to worship our King who has come, uh, the Savior who has been born. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at passage in Isaiah 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 9. Uh, the passage is also printed in your order of service, so you can follow along there. Um, if, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, um, you may not be aware of this, but uh, this is the fourth Sunday in the season of Advent. Uh, Advent is uh, part of the church calendar, and um, it, is, it is that season when we remember the longing for the coming of the Messiah, when uh, oftentimes the church throughout its history has focused its attention on those passages that, that uh, speak of the coming king of the birth of Christ. And this is the fourth of those Sundays, and we've, as we've been going through this, we've been looking at the four titles ascribed to Jesus in Isaiah 9, specifically in verse 6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, if you've been with us, you, you know that, um, uh, well, we're kind of off, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, winter had uh, threw us a little bit of a, uh, well, it messed us up, let's just say that. So, um, so instead of taking each one of these week by week, uh, we're having to combine the last two this morning, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And so uh, this morning, we're going to consider these final two titles that are given to Jesus. So let's go ahead and read Isaiah 9. We'll begin in verse 2 and read through verse 7 to give us context for our passage. Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. <clears throat> Excuse me. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, uh, we do need your grace this morning. Uh, I need it as we I proclaim your word, and we need it as we listen to your word proclaimed. And so we ask that you would, um, that you would meet with us, that by the power of your spirit, you would soften our hearts and open our ears, and that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our souls to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I imagine that um, many of us probably have a nativity scene set up in our homes right now. Um, if you don't have one in your house, you've, you've seen one. You know what a nativity scene is. And they're all pretty much the same, right? You know what to expect when you see one. It's made out of wood or plastic. There's these little figurines, right? A little baby in, in a cradle or Mary and Joseph sitting around the baby. Some, some cattle, you know, maybe a donkey or a camel, or maybe a star and some wise men, right? We, we know what a nativity scene is supposed to look like. 
They're pretty pristine and plain, pretty kind of peaceful. There's no glitter, no lights. At least there's not supposed to be, uh, you know. If there's glitter, the kids have gotten into them. But, um, but we know what they're supposed to look like. They're, they're ra- rather peaceful looking. And so we know what they're supposed to look like, and that's why it was so uh, disjarring for me when I saw a picture of a nativity scene of my friend. Uh, he had posted it on Facebook, and I was just going through my Facebook you know, feed, and, and I saw this nativity scene, and, and there was something that was very disorienting about it, and so I had to look closer, because in the midst of uh, marrying Joseph and three wise men and a star and some camels was a red dragon, <laughs> this toy red dragon, and so I stopped, and I looked really close at it, and I thought, isn't that funny, like his little boy put his dragon and just, you know, put it right there, that's perfect. Or, or maybe this is like the Lord of the Rings collector's edition nativity scene, and, you know, that'd be kind of fun, you know. You, you have a dragon, and, you know, I'll get that next year. No, it wasn't either of those things. It wasn't either, either of those things. You see, when I look closer at the picture, there was a little caption, and in the caption to the picture, he had written Revelation 12. Now, uh, I haven't uh, memorized the entire book of Revelation, so I flipped over to Revelation 12, and this is what Revelation 12 says. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now clearly, the Apostle John, in his revelation, he's invoking the memory of the image of Jesus' birth, right? That Mary is this woman who is pregnant, and Jesus is the male child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But But did you also hear who else was there? A red dragon, ready to devour the child. Now, I have to tell you, in all my images of Christmas and of nativity scenes, this is not the thing that comes to mind, right? What we think of is we think of light and stillness and the quiet of night and and peace. And, And all that's a part of the Christmas season, right? We know that, that that is part of it, but it's not all of it. See, what Revelation 12 is reminding us is that Jesus' advent, his coming, isn't just filled with peace, it's actually filled with danger. There's great threat in his coming. I mean, just think about right after Jesus is born, right? We know the story of the wise men. They come to worship Jesus, to bow down before this child, and so they go to King Herod. Herod's the king over this region. They say, we know that a child has been born who is the king, and so we want to go worship him. Where is he? And Herod, right, of course, he, he doesn't get excited about this threat to his power. Said he says to the wise men, well, go tell me where, where he can be found so I can worship him too. But we really know this is, you know, he's going to make Jesus sleep with the fishes. You know, that's what he's thinking. He wants to take him out. And so the wise men, they get savvy to what Herod has planned. And so what does Herod do? He has all the male sons, younger than three in Bethlehem in that area, killed. Right? He, 
He's afraid of Jesus' threat to his power, that there would be a king greater than Herod. And so he tries to have Jesus killed. This is the world that Jesus is born into. It's not just angels glorying over him. It's not just peace and quiet. It is not just worship. There is threat and danger. That's the world Christ is born into, and that's the world that we inhabit. Right? I mean, we know this world. We know this world that is often marked with sadness and sorrow, pain and difficulty. Right? We know that Jesus didn't just come into a hallmark holiday world because we experience the danger and the threat of this world. We, we hear those words, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but, but for some of us, it's, it's actually a time of year that is filled with sadness and pain. Sadness of a death of a loved one. The sting of a family at odds, the dulling ache of loneliness. See, this is the world we inhabit. This is the world that we woke up into this morning, and this is the world that we will continue to inhabit all of our lives. And it's because this is the world that we live in that we actually need Jesus' birth. We actually need Jesus to come into this world. We need the hope of Israel and the hope of the world that is found not only in a child, but in the child king who comes with that name, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, if we are just to scratch the surface on those titles, they give hope, don't they, and comfort? Father, peace. I mean, that's what we need. That's what we long for, right? That's why we celebrate at this time of year, because the Prince of Peace, he has come. He's the one who bears these names, and because he bears these names, he actually has the ability to affect change not only in this world, but in our lives. He's the balm for the peace-ridden soul. He's the balm for those who are hurting. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, He's the very one that we need. You see, Jesus comes into this world that we live in, this world that's marked by hurt and pain and sadness. He comes and he can bring about change. He can bring about change because he is royalty, because he's the king. It's the first thing these titles tell us, that he is the king, he is royalty. Now, that's clear from that very word prince, right? Obviously, prince equals royalty. And then verse 7, it reinforces this idea, right? We hear of the increase of his government on the throne of David over his kingdom, right? Government, throne, kingdom. This, these are all kingly words, right? It's speaking of Christ's royal lineage, but it's not only the word prince that speaks to his royalty. It's also that word father. Now, <clears throat> as Christians, when we hear father, we think Trinitarian language, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we think in these technical ways. And so it's easy to read this and think, well, I guess Isaiah kind of put a pause on talking about the child to come, and now he's just speaking of God the Father. But that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. You see, the referent doesn't change. The subject of the titles doesn't change right in the middle of it. It's not that Jesus is wonderful counselor, mighty God, and prince of peace. And then, oh yeah, there's everlasting Father, but that really has nothing to do with the child. Now, that's not what's happening here. Now, Jesus is called everlasting fathers, but what does that mean? Like, how are we supposed to understand Christ as father when we know that there is God the father? 
Well, we have to understand it not in a way of uh, diminishing Jesus's personhood. He is distinct from the Father. We talked about this last week. He's one in substance, but distinct. It doesn't diminish his personhood, but instead what everlasting Father is speaking of is his kingly authority, his kingly position. You see, there are times in the Old Testament where the Old Testament king, the Israelite king, is referred to as father. So, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David is on the run from Saul. Remember, David is the the king to come. Saul is the king at the time, and Saul's trying to kill David. And so what does David do as he's fleeing from him? He, He honors Saul. And in fact, there's this one time where David says to Saul, my father. Now, in saying my father, he's not saying that he's a biological father, right? Because we know David's father was Jesse. What he's saying is that Saul, as the king over Israel, is the father of the people. He's the father over the people. And so this title is oftentimes applied to the Old Testament king because the Old Testament king was supposed to function as a father functions, a benevolent protector of his children. That's the way the king is supposed to function over all of the people. And so he's called father. And so when Jesus takes on this mantle of the Davidic king, he is becoming the father over the people. It's pointing to his royalty, to his kingship. But Jesus isn't just like any other king because we have this little modifier, right? He's not just the father, he's the everlasting father. And so Jesus isn't like Ahaz, who's the king at this time, or he's not like Hezekiah, he's not like Saul, he's not even like King David, the greatest of the Israelite kings, he's greater than all of them. Because those kings were not eternal in their kingship, and yet Christ is. You see, that's what was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God made a promise to David, a covenant with him. And in that covenant, God said that I will raise up one who will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. He will sit upon the throne of David forever. There's a king to come. And so it couldn't have been David and it couldn't have been Solomon and it couldn't have been Hezekiah or Ahaz or any of the other Israelite kings. There was one to come. And what Isaiah 9 is telling us that that promised king is Christ. I mean, in verse 7, we hear this language of David invoked, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will reign on the throne forever. It's speaking of Christ's distinct kingship. He's the everlasting father because Christ is the king. See, friends, that's not just a title over the door. (laughs) Right? That's not just the name, is the name of our church because Christ is the king here and he's the king of the universe. He's the king. That's why he's everlasting father. And because he is the king, because he is, the, he is royalty, it tells us that he is able to do something about the peace that we are in need of. The strife and the difficulty that we experience, Christ is able to bring peace. And that's what he does. You see, he doesn't just come as royalty. Christ comes with peace. Now, when we think of peace, we think of peace between our fellow men, right? That we need peace with one another. 
that we need peace in this world, that we need mankind to have peace together. And we're, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but Christ's peace doesn't begin with peace between us. Christ's peace begins with us and the Father. And it begins there. It begins there because the Bible tells us, the story that we are born into tells us that our greatest problem is that there is no peace between us and God. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, when he describes our circumstance, our situation, he doesn't say, oh yeah, well, you guys are kind of close, like things are good, they're not bad, you just kind of differ with God in some nuanced ways, like we can all just agree to disagree, but go on, like that's not what he says. You know how he describes us? He says that you are an enemy of God. You're an enemy. That we are at war with God. That in our sin, we are at enmity between us and God. There is enmity. There's division. It's exactly what he says, that we are enemies. And we have to understand that because it tells us that our greatest need is for Christ to make peace between us and the Father. Before we can ever talk about peace between us, between one another, we need peace to be made between us and God. And that's what Christ does. That's what Jesus does. He enters into this world at war, man against God, and he comes not as just a warrior king, but he comes to give himself so that our enmity with God would be replaced with peace. Romans 5 goes on. It doesn't just speak of us being enemies. He says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul goes on, he says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That that is what Christ has done. He's made peace. One theologian James Boyce put it this way, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human body in order that he might die for our salvation. As he came into the world, our Lord had his mind on his greatest of purposes to provide salvation. And that's what he does. If you are trusting in Christ, if your hope is in him, you are no longer an enemy of God. But because of the Prince of Peace, you are now part of the royal family. You're part of the royal family. And so that means we need to live like royalty. I heard it once said that the queen mother, uh, before uh, Elizabeth was uh, made queen, the queen mother was talking to her daughters, the princesses Elizabeth and Margaret. And she said to them, she said that you are to have royal manners. (laughs) You're to have royal manners. And that was basically her way of saying you need to live out who you are. That you are royalty. You are princesses. You are to be a queen. And so you are to live like it. And that's what Paul tells us. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is telling us that, that who we are informs how we live. And who are you? 
Well, if you're trusting in the Prince of Peace, then you're a child of the Father. We're brothers and sisters of the King. And so that means that we live as royalty. We live as he desires us to live, not as we would live. You see, when Jesus brings us into his family, when he saves us, when he redeems us, he doesn't just now say, live any way that you desire, but, but he calls us to live as he would have us live. There's this wonderful passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus says to his disciples, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you hear that? The the rest that we are longing for, the peace that we desire, it is not found in going our own way. It is found by taking the yoke of Christ upon our shoulders. Kids, you know what a yoke is. It's it's that big piece of wood that goes on the ox or the cow so that that the the driver of the tractor or, or, or of the wagon can steer them and send them in whatever direction they are to go because apart from the yoke, they would just go anywhere that they desired. But the yoke directs them. It leads them in the way that they are to go. And what Jesus is telling us is that when we are part of his family, when we have been saved and are no longer enemies of the king, that he will lead us in the way that we are to go. That to live in the midst of his peace is to follow him. Not to follow our own ways, but to follow him. See, friends, the truth is, is that every time we sin, every time we turn from God, we are actually rejecting the peace that Christ has purchased for us. We are substituting his true peace for something that will only bring discord. And so if we're going to continue in his peace, we have to follow him. We have to follow as he directs. We have to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Because Christ has won peace for us with the Father. But this peace that he has won for us, it it overflows into our relationships with one another. You see, Christ not only gives us peace with the Father, but he gives us peace with one another. See, Ephesians 4, it continues. Paul doesn't just say, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He tells us what that manner is. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you hear how our lives are to be lived? That we are to have humility and gentleness with one another. That we are to have patience with each other. That we are to bear with one another in love. That we are eager to maintain unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, we reflect that we have peace with God by having peace with one another. By living peaceably together. That's why at the end of every service, before I pronounce the benediction, God's blessing, what do we say to one another? The peace of Christ be with you. And then you say back to me, and also with you. The peace of Christ be with you and also with you. And I, I don't know if, if y'all notice, but, but every once in a while, I'll throw in a little segue at the beginning, right? Because Christ has bought us back, because he has redeemed us by his blood, we not only have peace with the Father, but we also have peace with one another. And so the peace of Christ be with you. Because the peace that we have with God overflows to each other. 
And it's not just between me and you and you and me, but it's between y'all. It's between each other. That the body of Christ is to be manifestations of the peace of God. That we are to be ambassadors of peace to one another. And not just to the body of believers here, but to all of the body of believers. To all those who have been brought into Christ's kingdom. That we are to seek to live at peace with one another. And it's not just with the church, but it's also even with those outside the church. Because in Romans... The Apostle Paul says that we are to, as far as it depends on you, to live peaceably with all. As far as it depends upon you, you are to live peaceably with all. That we are to be ambassadors of peace in this world. And so a question that maybe we should be asking is, do our lives reflect the peace of Christ? Do our homes and our relationships with one another, do our relationships with our neighbors and our co-workers and our classmates, do they reflect the peace of Christ? It's an important question for us to think about. It's an important thing for us to ponder because that's exactly what Christ brings. He brings peace with the Father and he brings peace with each other, but, but his peace is also without end. It's without end. That's what verse 7 says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, his government and his peace, there will be no end. That phrase, no end, I think that there are two aspects to it. There are two aspects to it. I think first it's speaking in terms of breadth. that there will be no place that will not experience Christ's peace. That, that Christ's kingdom, his rule and his reign, it will extend into the farthest corners of the world. That the entire world will be filled with the glory of Christ. I think it's speaking of its breath. In fact, so much so that Isaiah chapter 2 tells us that Christ's peace will extend to such a degree that swords will be beat into plowshares and spears will become pruning hooks and nation will no longer lift up sword against nation because the peace of Christ will reign. His peace will know no end. Speaking of breath, but it's also speaking in terms of time. His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It will never end. That we will live in Christ's peace for all eternity. It will never end from this time forth and forevermore. I have to tell you that, that this vision that Isaiah is giving us? This description of the kingdom of Christ? I have to tell you that, that this is an enticing vision. And that when, when I think about it, and I think about the peace of Christ reigning and ruling over our lives, over this world, over my own hearts, I mean, th this, is, this is a vision that warms my heart. But I also have to tell you that even as 
this vision entices me and, and, and creates, stirs in my imagination what could be, uh, I can't help but think, where is it? Where is it? I mean, we began this morning with discord and division, hardship and hardship and heartache, and, and tomorrow and the next day we're going to experience it, and we're going to continue to experience it. And so it's easy for us, for us to ask, where is this peace? Because it feels like sometimes that, that maybe the dragon did devour the child. But we know he didn't. You see, even as we ask that question, where is this peace? We ask this question in the midst of remembering that as wonderful and as incredible as Christ's first advent was, we still await his second advent. His return when the promises which have been fulfilled in part will one day be fulfilled in full. You know, at the very end of our Bibles the very last page, the very last chapter of Revelation 22, there's a repeated refrain. It's Jesus. He's saying, behold, I'm coming soon. That, that that's the last chapter of our scriptures. Behold, I am coming soon. He says it at least three times. Behold, I am coming soon. And in his coming, in that day, the dragon who sought to devour the child will be defeated for good. And in his returning, behold, I am coming soon. We will be with God and he himself will be our God and we will be his people. And behold, he is coming soon and we will dwell as his people in the new heavens and the new earth in his peace forever. That is what is coming. That is the day we await. That is the day that Jesus began in his first advent and that he ensured would come again when he died and rose to new life. That that day is coming. We know that it will because Christ our King is our everlasting Father because Christ the King is the Davidic King of promise. He is the Prince of Peace. And so we hear, Behold, I am coming soon. And we say with the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus, come, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, come and bring your peace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that the promise of Christ's coming is sure. That just as he came, we know that he will come again in glory and in his coming, that all that which we have tasted, we will know in full. We will experience in full a day when, when your peace will last forevermore. When there will be no more tears and no more sickness. When there will be no more disease and there will be no more death. But we will live and reign with you, our God and our King. We long for that day and so we ask that today that you would stir in our hearts a longing for it to come, and that we would say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.